We are in Psalm 119 this morning, starting in verse 145. I'm not used to saying verse numbers that are so long. It's great to be back with all of you back here worshiping again. And I do want to say thank you to Joey, Claire, and Andrew for leading us in worship this morning. I do want to say thank you to the elders for again giving me this opportunity to come and preach this morning. We're in Psalm 119, 145. I, I want to start with a question. How do you handle difficult times? In just a few days, it's going to be August, and 2020 will be more than halfway over. And for many, I imagine, the end of this year cannot come soon enough. I mean, just let's think about how this year has gone so far. It started off with COVID-19, a disease or a virus that they said was going to wipe out millions. That led to lockdowns, national lockdowns. The entire country was shut down and countries around the world shut down their economies. That led to face mask orders and stay-at-home orders. Those orders led to rampant unemployment. 40 million people lost their jobs in the U.S. alone. Then came the police brutality, the race riots, the looting, the rising crime. A six-block portion of a major city was taken over by anarchists and held for several months or a couple of months. Statues have been torn down. Monuments have been destroyed or vandalized. Churches have been shut down. Worship has been stopped. And in some states, the First Amendment is used to protect rioting and looting. But it does not guarantee the peacefully assembling to worship. In recent memory, I don't think there's been a time that we've experienced this kind of turbulence. Certainly not in my life could you define a period of time like this. And I think the best way to describe it would be a time of difficulty. This is a difficult time to be alive. This is a difficult time to live. Fear, panic, and worry seem to be the new normal. And no matter who you are, no matter where you live in this country, no matter what your status is in the country, these events have impacted you. They have affected you in some way and to some degree. And if you spend too much time watching the news, the 24-hour news cycle, or reading about it online, you're likely to feel miserable, disheartened, sick, or just plain worried. So how do you deal with difficult times? What's the secret to getting through times like this? How do we get through them with our faith intact? With some resemblance of joy? I think the author of our passage this morning has some experience in dealing with difficult times. He didn't have to deal with COVID-19, nor the insanity of American politics, but he certainly had his share of difficulties. In verse 53 of Psalm 119, he says that he has been seized by burning indignation because of the wicked. He looked around him and saw the wicked, sinful behavior of the sinful world, and it caused a righteous anger to burn inside of him. And I suspect there are many of you, when you turn on the news, you have the same feeling. In verse 158, he says he loathes the treacherous. Not only were the wicked around him, near him, 
but they were coming after him. In verse 61, he says, Their snares and traps have encircled him. He's surrounded by evil men, trying to entrap and to ensnare him. And these aren't practical jokers. These aren't people who are just trying to have a a good time and have some laughs at his expense. They have evil intentions. Verse 95, he said the wicked are trying to destroy him. Even in our passage this morning, verse 150, he says the wicked are drawing near. They're getting closer. And in verse 157, he says his persecutors and adversaries are many. He's outnumbered. And no less than seven times in this one psalm does he describe himself as being afflicted. I think the psalmist knows something about living through a difficult time. And yet, in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of the difficulty of life, in verse 164, he says, Seven times a day I will praise you. How is this possible? How is he not overwhelmed with worry and anxiety? How can he maintain his joy and continue to say, seven times a day I will praise you? And the number there isn't the important part of it. It's the fact that his day is filled with continual praise to God. More importantly, how can we endure difficult times and trials? In our passage this morning, he provides three instructions on how you can face difficult times. And they are these. First one, make obedience your priority. Verses 145 and 146. Make obedience your priority. Secondly, fix your hope on the promises of God. That's in 147 through 149. And third, remember the truth you already know. That's in 150 to 152. Let's start with the first instruction for facing difficult times. Make obedience your priority. Look at verse 145. The psalmist says, I cried with all of my heart. Notice he says, I cried. He says it again in verse 146. I cried. It's literally, I called. But this term is used to describe people calling out in a time of emergency. A national emergency, a personal emergency, and so they translate it as, I cried to show some desperation. The danger he was facing was real. The enemies around him were truly wicked men with truly wicked intentions. And he recognized there's not much he can do about it. Just like all of us, there's really not a whole lot you can do about what's going on in the world today. And so he did the one thing that he had in his ability. He went to prayer. And he cries out to God. And this verb here indicates this isn't a one-time thing. This is habitual. This is constant. Going back and back and back. Continually crying out to God. This desperation wasn't manifested in cold, emotionless, stale prayers that he just regurgitates to God. You can see the psalmist kneeling by his bed with tears pouring out of his eyes, pleading with God. He says in verse 145, he cried with all of my heart. It's another way of saying I 
used every ounce of my being. Every fiber in my being was involved in seeking after God. I held nothing back. All of his mind, all of his emotions were put to the task of getting God to listen to him. And at the end of that first verse, he says, or into that first line in 145, he says, Answer me. Answer me. The statement in Hebrew is actually an imperative, it's a command. Now, to be sure, the psalmist is not blaspheming God by trying to order God around. The Hebrew uses the command in an address toward God as a way of stressing or emphasizing. He's pleading with God. You might say he's begging God. Please answer me. This same phrase, answer me, is used in two situations, and only two. First, it's used when God is said to answer prayer. The second time it's used, it's used in the context of someone pleading with God. But this phrase is never used when referring to one person speaking to another person. It's only used in reference to God answering. The psalmist knows who he is calling on. He knows who he's praying to. He knows who he wants to answer. He is calling to God. He's not submitting his petitions to an earthly king. He says, answer me, O Lord. You might notice in your translation, that is in all caps, the name used there is Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's an important name. And when it shows up in the Psalms, we really need to pay attention to it Yahweh is the name of the God who makes covenants. He not only makes the covenant, but he keeps the covenant. It is Yahweh who made promises to Noah. It is Yahweh that called Abram from Ur and promised to bless the nations through his seed. It is Yahweh who established a covenant with Moses and led the children of Israel through the wilderness and into the promised land. It is Yahweh who established the throne of David. It is Yahweh who promised to David that his descendant will sit on that throne in an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. But why would the, why would the covenants of God be relevant here? Why does it matter that he's calling upon Yahweh, the covenant-making God? He's calling on God because he's identifying himself with the people of covenant. Another answer is in Deuteronomy 28, part of God's law, part of God's covenant with the Israel, people of Israel. Listen to what the psalmist would have heard if he would have read the law. Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, The Lord, Yahweh, will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. That's a promise God made to the people of Israel if they would be obedient to him. That's part of his promises to the psalmist. When the psalmist uses the name of Yahweh, he identifies himself with the people of the covenant. You might say he's saying, I am one of yours, God. You promised to defend me. 
You promised to scatter my enemies, and yet now, here they are. So answer me. Yahweh is the faithful God. He's the God who makes promises, and then he keeps them. The psalmist is pleading with him, calling upon his name. It is evidence that he actually believes that God will keep the promise. And what is his plea? What is he asking God to do? Verse 146. I cried to you, save me. What's the content of the plea? What is he asking God for? Rescue. Rescue from danger. Rescue from physical danger. His desire is that God would rescue him from the plans of the wicked. But again, we have to ask what seems like a ridiculous question. Why does he want to be rescued? And the obvious answer there is he wants to be rescued because, well, he's in danger. But it's interesting that that's not the answer the psalmist gives. He doesn't say, Lord, rescue me because I'm in danger. Look at verse 145. Right after he says, answer me, he says, I will observe your statutes. He's not asking God to rescue him because he's such a good guy. He's not saying, God, you should rescue me because, well, look how well I'm behaving. And God, you owe it to me. That's not what his statement is saying. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. The phrase could be translated, so that I may keep your statutes. It's a conditional statement. By rescuing him, God would be enabling the psalmist to be more obedient. This is the same idea as repeated again in verse 146 in the second line. And I shall keep your testimonies. God rescuing him from his enemies, God giving him deliverance from those that would persecute him, would give the, give the psalmist the opportunity to be more obedient and to be more holy. He wants to be obedient. He wants to obey God's statutes. The root of this idea for statutes refers to engraving, writing. And that gives the idea of permanence, unchanging laws. God's requirement for holiness, God's requirement for obedience doesn't change with your circumstances. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are doing. It didn't matter that the psalmist was facing the dangers of the wicked. What mattered was that he was to be obedient because those laws are still unchanging and permanent. There is never an excuse for sin. You can't turn back to God and say, well, God, it was okay for me to sin because look at what's going on around me. Difficult times are not an opportunity for you to let your guard down and to say, I don't have to worry about sin now because i got all these other problems. That's just rationalizing sin. Difficult times are a reminder of our weakness, of our true dependence upon God. They shouldn't drive us to say, well, I don't care about what God says. They should drive us to pray and to be more dependent upon God, to seek after him more. Because those laws are unchanging. They are permanent. 
The other term he uses in verse 146, and the NASB is translated as testimonies, refers to a collection of covenant stipulations given in writing at Mount Sinai. It's referring to the Mosaic law. This man of God, this psalmist, in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of physical danger to himself, calls upon God and says, I want you to deliver me according to your promises so that I can obey you better. So I can be more holy. He didn't say, Lord, deliver me so I can have a better life. He didn't say, Lord, deliver me so I can enjoy my possessions and my family, so I can just get back to life as normal. Just get this year to end so we can get back to what we used to be doing. No, the psalmist said, God, I want you to deliver me so I can be obedient to your law. His focus was not on his circumstances. His focus was not on the problems that surrounded him. He wasn't focusing on the other people's sin and talking about how wicked they are. His greatest desire was that he could be pleasing to God in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his trial. When you get into a trial, where is your focus? Where has it been this year? Do your prayers sound like this? Do you run to God and plead that God would just deliver you? Deliver you so you don't have to suffer? Deliver you so your life can go back to normal? Just deliver me, Lord. I don't like this. Trials, suffering, yes, even persecution are God's way of sanctifying us, of making us more like Christ. In verse 67, the psalmist wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Affliction and suffering were the means by which God brought about practical holiness in the life of the psalmist. In verse 72, he said, It is good for me that I was afflicted. When was the last time you heard that from someone? It is good for me that I'm going through this COVID-19. It's good for me that I'm quarantined for two weeks. In verse 72, he said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It wasn't good because he was going through a trial. It wasn't good because evil men were acting wickedly. It was good because it was the means by which God was going to teach him holiness and obedience. In fact, in verse 75, the psalmist said that those afflictions and sufferings were God being faithful to him. He said, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. It's not just that I'm being afflicted. It's that God himself is doing it to me. And this is a sign that God is faithful, that God actually cares about me. And you, Christian, Jesus said in this life, you will have tribulations. You will suffer. It's not a question of if. The only question is when. Suffering, 
trials, tribulations, sickness, disease, viruses, pandemics, persecutions, every form of affliction that you experience in this lifetime are sovereignly determined by God to bring about Christ-likeness in your life, in my life. And our focus during those times, during difficult times, should not be on our circumstances. It should not be on how can I get out of this. Our focus during those times shouldn't be on the avoidance of pain and seeking after comfort. Your first goal should be to seek God's aid. That you would be God's kind of man or God's kind of woman in the midst of that circumstance. That you would be pleasing to him even in the middle of your suffering. And that through your suffering that you would grow to be more like Christ and that you would bring glory to God in doing so. Those trials should not be a cause for stumbling into sin. The first instruction for enduring difficult times, make obedience your priority. Second instruction for enduring, enduring difficult times, fix your hope on the promises of God. Look at verse 147. He said, I rise before dawn and cry for help. Notice he says he rises before dawn, literally before twilight. The sun hadn't broken the horizon yet, and he's awake. You know, the only people who break their sleep are people who really want to do something. They really have a desire. If you're willing to break off sleeping so you can go pray, there's some great desire. You have a pressing need. I don't want to sleep anymore. I need to, I need to seek after God. He had to start his day in prayer. And what were his prayers? Verse 147 again. He said, and cry for help. Now, I know we just looked at a word that said, I cried. This is not the same word. This term refers to a successive series of screams, screaming over and over again. Calvin said of this term, it does not so much refer to the loudness of your voice, but to the strong desire behind the scream. It's the scream of a person who's desperate for help. It's the scream of a person who needs help. He was awake before the sun came up, but just because his eyes were full of sleep, just because he was drowsy, it didn't diminish his fervency in prayer. He knew that the answer to his problems, the solution for his suffering was not in himself. He wasn't going to find a solution by getting a little bit more sleep or thinking on it. It's not in the world. His hope was somewhere else. He had placed his hope in something else. Look at the second line of verse 147. I wait for your words. Literally, I hope in your words. His hope was not in the world. His hope was not in himself. His hope was in the word of God. 
And for the psalmist, prayer and the word of God are intimately connected. This verb actually indicates that this is continual hoping. Continually trusting in God. Trusting in the word of God. His prayers are not fanciful wishes. They are not baseless desires with no logical reason to expect that they would be answered. His hopes are not an attempt to drown out his fear by suppressing it in unrealistic expectations. This is not avoidance. The word of God is the solid ground of his expectations. It's the source of his desire. It's what he has pinned his hopes to. And his early morning prayers were accompanied by time in the word. Look at verse 148. He says, My eyes anticipate the night watches. The night watches refer to four-hour-long segments that they broke up the night into. And when the term is used in the Psalms, it refers to a person lying in bed, meditating on the promises of God. Psalm 63, verse 6, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. This term, this idea of meditate, can include thinking, but it also includes speaking. The speaking part is speaking to yourself, reciting the word of God to yourself, reciting the words of God and the works of God. And as you think on the word and the works of God, you think upon them and you consider their implications. You consider how they apply it and what they mean for your life. The psalmist could lie in his bed and look back at the times in the past when God had delivered his people. He can look back at the 400 years in Egypt where they were praying constantly for deliverance. And God was faithful to deliver. He can look back in his own life when he was rescued from things that he couldn't have rescued himself from. When God had been faithful. During difficult times, when the world is going crazy, when people seem to be chasing after nothing but sin, when persecution comes, when difficult times show up, think on dwell on, fix your hope upon the word of God. Consider what he has already done, what he has done for you. Remember the gospel. Recount what you were before Christ saved you. Think about where you were headed before Christ saved you. Consider the realities that God himself died in your place. Now, if you do that, it's going to cause your heart and mind to want to do one thing, to give praise and to thanksgiving. When you truly meditate on the word, it's going to lead to prayer. Psalm 119, verse 62 the psalmist said, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. In fact, in the second line of verse 148, he says, that I may meditate on your word. In the midst of his struggles and trials, 
with enemies closing in, with people seeking to do him harm. He's not focused on his circumstances. He's not worried about what other people are doing. He's not worried about what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't lie awake at night, wringing his hands, trying to figure out what to do next. Instead, he fixes his hope on the promises of God. He considers what God has done in the past. He considers what God has promised to do for him. And he willfully chooses to think on, dwell on the works and the promises of God rather than the uncertainty of his circumstance. It's a conscious choice not to dwell on those things. Your thought life is vital to your success during difficult times. You can sit and worry yourself to death, and the only place you'll get is an early grave. Paul instructed Christians, he said, be anxious for nothing. And if we really sit and think about that, he actually means it. There is nothing that should cause you to worry. There is nothing that you should lie awake at night worrying about or dwelling on and becoming fearful over. Jesus addressed the fears of his disciples who worried about food and clothing. Well, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? And Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. It's an endless cycle of worry. The moment you sit here and start worrying about all the events of the world and the problems, you're never going to escape that. Because Jesus said it's just going to get worse. Filling your mind and heart with worry is a denial that God is a loving and merciful Father. It's telling God you do not trust that he will act in your best interest. That he's not being faithful to you. And that you can't trust him for tomorrow. That he's not keeping the promises that he has made to you. Worry says that God is not only an unloving and unmerciful father, but that he is a negligent father. That he is either asleep on the job or he just doesn't care. And because of that, worry is nothing less than sin. It is at its heart a distrust of God. Worry is not just something that should be avoided. It's a sin that should be repented of. Not only is it a sin, it's kind of pointless too. Jesus said you cannot add an hour to your life through worry. It gets you nothing. So stop it. Repent of the worry. Don't let the endless train of negative thoughts, fears, worries overwhelm you. Fix your hope on the word of God. Think on scripture. Think about what God has done for you. Read through the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about his provision for you and his care for you. Fix your hope on the promises of God. Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Fill your mind with thoughts of God and thoughts of Christ. Paul said, don't worry. Stop thinking about your problems. Stop worrying about your circumstances. 
you, Christian, in the 21st century, stop letting the news cycle dominate your mind. Turn off Fox News. Go listen to a sermon. Do as Paul instructed in Philippians 4, 6. When that worry and that fear starts to take over, Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds. That's true even in difficult times. That's true even in persecution, even when people are coming after you. And that is exactly what the psalmist does. Look at verse 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Again, he, he asked God to hear him. After meditating on the works and the promises of God, the psalmist is driven to call out to God. And once again, he has an emphatic plea. You might say his plea is this. Pay attention to me. Listen. But notice he does change one thing. He does not say, hear my voice according to your word. Instead, he asked God to hear his prayers according to God's loving kindness. Throughout the Psalms, we do find this term, the loving kindness of God, mentioned. Psalm 136, he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for, his, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 63, 3, because, of your loving, because your loving kindness is better than life. The term loving kindness refers to the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. God is faithful to what he has promised. He is loyal to his people. This term refers not to something God does. It refers to what God is. It's talking about his nature. He is by nature faithful. He is by nature loyal. And he is by nature trustworthy. And it is upon the faithfulness of Yahweh that the psalmist is pleading. Answer me according to your faithfulness, according to your mercy, and according to your nature. After meditating on the scripture, after considering the previous words and works of God, the promises of God, the psalmist is assured of one thing. He has one confidence. God cannot, God will not violate his own promises. God is by nature faithful. And he cannot act against his own nature. And the psalmist cries out to him and merely asks God to act in accordance with his own nature. And what is it the psalmist desires? Look at the second line of verse 148. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. This phrase, revive me, literally refers to giving life. In this form, it means to bring back to life. And in the context, it refers to uh, preserving his life, protecting his life. And he says, do this according to your ordinances, the ordinances of God. The ordinances of God are his just decisions, his right decisions. The psalmist recognizes that wicked men are seeking to harm the righteous 
of God. The, the wicked men are seeking to hurt the servants of God. And according to God's law, those people should be judged. And according to what God has said, God will protect and defend his people. And his prayer is that God would hear his pleas, not because he deserves it. He's not asking God to hear his plea because he deserves God to hear it. He's asking God to hear his plea because God is faithful to his people. And he is faithful to the promises that he has made. And secondly, he's asking that God would preserve his life. Again, notice the psalmist here, where's his focus? It's not on his circumstances. It's not on his problems. It's not on the behavior of those around him. His focus is, his hopes are fixed on the promises of God. And merely asking God to act in accordance with his own promises. So to get through difficult times, you need to make obedience your priority. Secondly, you need to fix your hope on the promises of God. And finally, remember the truth you already know. Remember the truth you already know. Look at verse 150. Those who follow after wickedness draw near. He doesn't identify who he's referring to. He just says there's a group of people that are pursuing, that are following after, that are chasing wickedness. The term here refers to an evil plan. They have some evil plot they've cooked up, and they're pursuing it with all diligence. And he says of these people, they draw near. As the psalmist is seeking God, as the psalmist is pleading for God's aid, those who want to hurt him continue to get closer. He hasn't been ignoring the problem. He knows they're there. He knows exactly where they are. He's not sticking his head in the stand and pretending the world is just perfect. He's not living in a fantasy world. He's very much aware of their presence. But notice the comparison he makes in the second line of verse 150. He says, they are far from your law. They are drawing near to me, but they are far from your law, God. He views this situation from the perspective of God's word. The closer they get to achieving their wicked plans, the closer they get to enacting their sinful desires, the further they move in sin and disobedience. The further they get away from God. The more they remove themselves from God's law, the more they ultimately remove themselves from God himself. In rejecting the law of God, they reject the lawgiver. The psalmist doesn't view himself as some helpless little victim, wrongly persecuted, unjustly attacked. He views their behavior according to what he knows to be true. They are in rebellion against God. They are sinners. And while their attempts to hurt him are offensive and bothersome, the real problem is not their plan, but their rebellion against God's law. The real problem here is they are running away from God. When you and I face persecution, when others plot evil things for you, remember the truth you already know. 
Jesus said the world hated him and the world will hate you too. Jesus said the world will grow worse and worse as his return approaches. Christians shouldn't be surprised by an evil and wicked world. Christians shouldn't be surprised that sinful men act sinfully. A sin-filled world that rejects God is precisely what we should expect. As we watch the news, as we watch the moral decay that pervades our society, the knowledge that they are running from God should lead us to pray more, to evangelize more, and to hope and to look forward to the return of Christ even more. For the psalmist, though, he realized that the truth of wicked men were running away from God, but he also remembered another truth. They're running from God. Look at verse 151. You are near, O Lord. He's not saying that God is closer physically to him than the evil men. He's not talking about relative distance. The nearness of God here refers to God being intimately close for the purpose of providing aid and comfort. If God is close, then he can help. If God is close, then he can hear you. If God is close, he can give you comfort. The fact that God is close means that God is willing and able to provide aid and assistance. And again, he hasn't forgotten about his adversaries. He's not living in a fantasy. This isn't a fantasy. What's happened here is that the thoughts about the wicked men have been eclipsed by thoughts of the nearness of God. The nearness of God has pushed out all the other thoughts. And that's all he can dwell on. That's all he can think on. In your time of trouble, do you remember this truth? When you face hard and difficult times, when life seems to be falling apart, when others plot against you, and when nothing seems to be working and the world seems to be falling, when the media starts talking about COVID-19 or riots or looting, when the talking heads and the pundits tell you about the danger of this politician or the necessity of this politician, do you remember what Jesus said? I will be with you always. Do you remember the promises of God that I will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you recall that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you? And I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Paul said of that day, we shall meet the Lord in the air and so shall we always be with him. When you go through difficult times, remember the truth that you already know. God is still here. God is still sovereign. He's still with you. He's still near you. He is still ready, willing, and able to help and to give comfort. How can you be confident of this? How can you be sure this is true? You can do that the same way the psalmist could. Look at the end of verse 151. And all your commandments are truth. The psalmist is confident because he knows that God's commands are true. God promised to be the defender of his people. He promised to never leave them nor forsake them. 
after meditating all night on the word of God, on the promises of God, the psalmist can now confidently say, yes, Lord, I know all of your promises are absolutely true. Not only are they true, look at verse 152. Of old I have known your testimonies, that you have founded them forever. He says, of old, likely referring to his childhood. All my life, I have known the testimonies of God. The things that witness about who God is and what he does and what he desires. I have known those things. You might say it another way, he has an intimate knowledge, a deep knowledge of the testimonies of God. And those testimonies testify to his promises. They testify to his works. They testify to his nature as being faithful. The psalmist knows God. He has an intimate relationship with him. He then says that you have founded them, speaking of his testimonies, forever. The word of God has been established. It's set. It's fixed. His promises are unchanging. It cannot be altered by men, and it will not be altered by God. What God has promised, God will perform. And what God has said, he will do. And regardless of what happened in the psalmist's life, regardless of what the evil men did, the psalmist had confidence that what God had promised him was absolutely true. And in that, he found comfort and peace, even during the most difficult days of his life. You might be going through a difficult time right now. And if you are, if what's going on in the world is affecting you, or there's something else going on, follow the example of the psalmist. In the midst of your trial, make obedience your priority. Don't focus on getting out of your problems, but focus on being God's kind of man or God's kind of woman in the midst of those problems. When you're going through a trial, fix your hope on the promises of God. Don't spend your days and your nights thinking on and dwelling on all the problems of the world. Think on, dwell on, meditate upon what God has said. Third, remember the truth you already know. Remember that you live in a sin-filled world. The persecution and suffering is to be expected. But that God is always near and able and ready to come to your aid. Remember that Scripture is true. His promises are true. You have absolutely no reason to fear or to worry because his promises can never be changed or annulled. He will fulfill every single promise that he's made to you. That is true for the Christian. But there are also promises to those who are not Christians. If that's you, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, God has made a promise to you too. He has promised that he will judge all sin. He has promised that all sinners will suffer the wrath for their sin in a lake of fire. That is a promise he has made, 
And that is a promise he will keep. He will judge all sin. He also made another promise. That you don't know the day of your death. You don't know when your last day will be. And if you die without Christ, your difficult times have just begun. Because he has promised that he will judge all sin. But Christ has also made a promise to you. That if you trust in him, if you call upon him for mercy, he will take that wrath. He will take the punishment that you are due. And he will give to you eternal life. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. That's a promise. He also said that I will in no wise cast out those who come. If you have not trusted in Christ, I beg you and urge you to trust in him, to repent. And if you have, you have no reason to fear. Because his promise of eternal life is still true. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who's in control of all things. This world is not out of control. It's in your control. You are a sovereign God and you, you determine and you decree all things. And even our suffering, even the difficult times that we face are ordained by you for our eternal good so that we would be more like Christ. And in the weeks and months ahead, regardless of where things go, we just ask that you would help us to keep our minds and our hearts fixed on your word, on your promises, and to remember the truth that you have already given us, and that we would seek to be pleasing to you even in the midst of those circumstances. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.